You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, appreciate you guys spending some time with us and hearing the stories of America's heroes. This week on the podcast, our guest is a retired Marine Corporal. He is also the CEO of 22 Kill, an organization dedicated to helping veterans preventing suicide, and he even had a cameo in the movie American Sniper. It is Jacob Schick on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jacob, welcome. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you having me, brother. Thanks a lot. Well, listen, so much that you're doing right now is so important to this podcast with uh, 22 Kill and the organization as we are all trying to prevent veteran suicide. And it's something that's near and dear to everybody who is part of this podcast. It's near and dear to us. But we'll get to that coming up here shortly. But we kind of wanted to get your story because what happened to you and what you went through is part of the reason why 22 Kill exists and, and your position in the company exists. So with that, how did your military career get started? Great question. Uh, so as a young kid, I was real close to my grandmother and, um, I'm actually a third generation Marine behind my grandfather who fought on Iwo Jima in World War II and my uncle who was a gunner in Vietnam. And, you know, my grandmother would talk about my grandfather, her chest would swell with pride and I could see her eyes light up. And so I always thought to myself, you know, I I want her to do that when she talks about me and so about the age of eight years old i I decided and determined come hell or high water i'm gonna be united states marine and that's what happened in the beginning of my senior year coppell high school in texas i um signed up went to the recruiter got it all done volunteered for infantry and keeping my family lineage and um i remember that was in 2000 when i signed up and graduated high school, and I wasn't due to leave to boot until December time frame. And I remember seeing the uh, that second plane at the South Tower on 9/11, and I knew at the ripe old age of 19 that I was going to war. So back and, up, back up for a second though. Yeah. At eight years yeah. old, when you told your family that you wanted to be a Marine, nobody even questioned it. Everybody was okay with it. Even even as you got older and you still had this dream of being a Marine, everybody in the family was on board with it. You know what? In the beginning, that's a great question. I've never been asked, actually. In the beginning, yeah, because at eight years old, I'm sure just like you know, you and I are dads. You can be whatever and, you want. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then you're thinking, you know, well, that's going to change a thousand times by the time, you know, your kid, respectively, he or she turns 18. And uh, so as a matter of fact, I didn't even it just we, we stopped talking about it. it didn't come up by the time I was in high school. And uh, I didn't even tell anyone that I that I signed up and and it was kind of a shock to people. But they also knew that if anyone in the, in the family was going to be the third generation, it was going to be me. And so that's uh, that's exactly how it happened. As a matter so, of fact, my dad found out at my high school graduation where he met my recruiter. Was he was he upset? He was a little not happy with me. Did, what did he say to you? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. He said, why would you do that? <laughs> and your response was? I couldn't. He walked away. I oh. didn't talk to him until after I graduated boot camp. <laughs> really? Was that hard on you? Yeah, but uh, more so in a, in a weird way, it motivated me to 
to work and try harder because it was a, well, I'll show him attitude. Right. And, um, so I, I gotta tell you though, man, I mean, I didn't understand at the time why he felt that way. Is it, of course I'm, I'm 19 years old and you think, you know, everything when in all actuality, you don't know a damn thing. And, um, but he had seen the after effects of war not only with his dad but with his older brother and i didn't i didn't know uh or understand remotely that that was his biggest concern and so now i understand wholeheartedly in way more ways than one why he felt that way I know this is a hard question to answer because so many things have happened to you during your your career that have changed the course of things but if you had been able to have that clarity to understand why your father was upset, do you think it would have affected your decision in hindsight? Absolutely, unequivocally, no. Mm, okay. <laughs> Did anybody in your family, right after 9-11 happened, and you had told them, because you said you, you at graduation everybody found out, so you're talking about June 2001, and then 9-11 happens. Did anybody in your family tell you, Jacob, you got, you got to find a way out of this. You, got to, you can't go. Like, were people nervous? Yes, there were a couple of people that mentioned that, and uh, but they knew me, they know me, and knew that that was not even remotely a thought of mine because uh, I believe in when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And I believe that the a handshake is is a man's bond, and, and that's his word, and you take him at his word, and that's how I conduct business. That's how I conduct myself. And, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, was I nervous? Was I scared? Well, yeah, I'm human. And anyone who says that they, they went to war or were about to go to war and weren't even a little nervous or scared is one of two things, lying or stupid. Probably a combination of both. Beyond yeah, that, that <laughs> beyond that, uh, so you, you head off to basic, and what are you thinking? What are your thoughts? What are your expectations as you go to basic? Because, as you said, you knew you were going to war at that point. Yeah, so my expectations were, you know, I, I, I expected it to be, and it's Marine Corps boot camp. We all know it's intense, but I expected it to be a little more intense than the usual for obvious reasons. Um, there was a lot more motivation there to train hard and, and be very vigorous in the daily tasks. And so it was what I thought it was going to be. And um, it was tough. But what makes it worth it is that you have platoon worth of like-minded individuals driven by the same passions around you. And those that aren't don't make it. So it's uh, – it was everything I thought it was going to be. And man, I bet you, I no boot camp before ours. I guarantee you were, was the word terrorist or the name bin Laden thrown around as much as we heard it. Really? Was they trying to use it as a motivational tool? Absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of give me an yeah. example. Just paint that picture. Cause I'm curious to how, it, how it went. So like we would have a DI say, look at one of the word or one of the recruits and say, you know, if Bin Laden walked in this room right now, could you shoot him in the face or something along those lines? You know, it'd be very, and you hear these recruits, I sir, yes, sir, this recruit. And of course the DIs immediately tell them, 
how much he thought that he was lying, um, which is you know par for the course in boot camp. But that's just one example. You know, then you would, you know, we would be say we'd be on the O course and they'd say, you know, we'd go platoon by platoon and you know, there's a bunch of terrorists at the end of this O course. First one to get there gets to kill all the terrorists or whatever. And um just a multitude of scenarios that they would bring up on a daily basis, which in all fairness, it, it did it did its job. It was motivating. I wonder when you look back on that, does it seem silly now? You know, um, to me, not really, because at the end of the day, you're having to motivate a bunch of kids to do something extremely outside the norm, their established norm. And um, the way I look at it is when it comes to motivation, inspiration, whatever it takes, do whatever you got to do. And because at the end of the day, we all know late teens are (laughs) as hard to motivate as anyone. And, uh, so call it silly, call it whatever you want. Um, but I think it was, it was useful. It worked for me and my platoon and uh, the other platoons that we graduated with. So, you know, I, I think it, they, they hit the mark on it. So what happens after boot camp? Where do you go? So after boot, I uh, went up north to Pendleton and it's where I did my SOI training school of infantry, where I became school trained. 0311 rifleman and then um and for me soi was just like boot boot camp i mean i never questioned one time where i was or why i was there Uh, i never did the this is the worst mistake i've ever made that never popped into my head i always knew i was right where i was supposed to be no matter how gnarly it got and um so graduated soi and that's when i checked into my unit shortly thereafter which was 1st Battalion, 23rd Marines, Bravo Company. And the reason that um, it's actually a reserve unit out of Louisiana, reserve grunt unit. And my thought process there was because the first generation of my grandfather was Corporal Schick, second generation of my uncle was Corporal Schick. So I was thinking, okay, I need to raise the bar for whoever the fourth generation is. Whoever that is, they're going to have to try a little harder because we've already got two generations of Corporal Schick and, the whole idea behind me going to the reserves first was I wanted to pick up sergeant and uh, go through college and get my commission and be a Mustang because it's a dying breed, not only in the Marines, but in every branch. And so that was my thought process there. Obviously, Johnny Jihad had different plans, but it is what it is. So you were going to go to college. That means you went to the reserves. Did that make your family happy? Did it put them at ease at least that you weren't going to go full time and immediately get on ground? I mean, you know, we all knew we were going at some point, but you right. weren't immediately going. At least you had a chance to be in college yeah. first. Yeah, you know, I think that that did put them at ease. I think that there was some, but they also knew, just like we all did, that it's a matter the call of time. Was coming. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. The call was coming, and so it was always, always in the corner of their mind and. You stay busy and you do what you do and you know we got we finally got the call and um oh three or early oh four that we were gonna go and um were you actually in college at that point were you taking classes and everything yeah i'd gone for uh 
you know, get my core classes out of the way. And I actually wasn't in at that point because it was just after a winter break where I'd taken some time off because uh, a family member had gotten cancer that I had to help a lot with that. And um, so I wasn't in at the exact time. But when we got the call, we were told we were going to do our work up, and then, which was at 29 Palms, which is a beautiful place. And then um, we're leaving 29 Palms, and we'd go over to Iraq. We didn't know where at, at that time, but we knew we were going to go to Iraq. So when do you actually get to Iraq, and where in Iraq are you? So we got to Iraq in the summer of '04, and we are in uh, the Sunni Triangle. Al Assad's our home base. Oh yeah, yeah, the Death Triangle, because I guess the the Rainbow Triangle is already taken. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when you get out there, what did you learn your mission was going to be? I mean, you're there in Iraq. I mean, you're not even a, you're a full year in, I guess. So we're, we're at OIF-2 now for the veterans listening, and they called it OIF-2. You know, OIF-1 was the first year, and OIF-2 was the second year. And I was there for OI, I was there at the end of OIF-2 into OIF-3. So, But regardless of all that, what were you told that your mission was? So it's really interesting because we were doing our work up at 29 palms and we went a couple other places to do various types of training from 29 palms. Uh, but we didn't, I don't even think our higher ups had a, a strong hold on exactly what we would be doing. And we knew we'd be doing some patrols. We knew we'd be doing some house to house, but I don't think they were completely clear on exactly how it was going to pan out. Because as you all know, and most of the listeners that are, listening that have been deployed in, in especially in combat areas understand that it's ever evolving I mean, you have to consistently change tactics because they're always changing theirs and it's a back and forth and so once we got there it was uh you know you're gonna be setting up a setting up DCPs, vehicle checkpoints, and we're going to do these patrols, and then we'll do this house-to-house, and then there'll be other BCPs. And then you got you have to have a REACT team, which is what I became part of, the REACT team. And uh, it was just one of those things that we trained for. We just trained for a bunch of different things, which I think helped us in the long run, no question, because we were prepared for a lot of different scenarios. And as you well know, you know, 04 was a busy time over there. But um, – it was definitely, um, you know, it was Semper Gumby. Luckily, we were all fluid and, and roll with the punches and move with the motion, and we were good. I mean, we I'm, I'm very proud to say that I'm a, a battle ambassador from 123 Bravo. Those guys were, were hands down, um, hands down legit warriors that, for all intents and purposes, are just better than me, but by default makes me better. No, I mean, listen, uh, you know, the mission that you guys had then was was one of the tougher ones in Iraq. And as you mentioned, 04 was a, it was almost like a chaotic time because after the initial invasion ended, uh, for those who don't know or remember for that matter, you know, things kind of kind of got quiet because we didn't know what we were doing. Like, you know, the initial invasion was over and everything stopped and you had like this four or five month period where it was really peaceful. And then all of a sudden, you know, the terrorists figured out, well, hey, America's still staying there. We could probably just go get them since they're so close. And that's when everything really started to ramp up and violence started to pick up at 04 into 05. And obviously the violence started to pick up where you guys were. Yeah, it was, uh, it was gnarly, man. I mean, it was definitely a, um, a time where you knew it didn't take long once boots were on the ground to realize like, okay, 
this is what we train for and we're getting what we asked for and you know we all had to remind ourselves like hey listen yeah we're in the suck but we also have to remember that we were all volunteers and no one told us to be here we volunteered for this so let's first and foremost remember that i mean yeah it's gonna suck and yeah it's hot and yeah we're gonna be hungry and thirsty but we're all doing it together and that's the reason that we're here we're we're the best in the world for a reason and so we had really high morale going in i mean my my unit is still to this day a really really tight-knit group of guys that started before we even started the workup and so i think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we knew we were going to go we just didn't know when right and so um it was uh yeah it was it was busy chaotic man it was it wasn't even organized chaos it was just it was chaotic because you're consistently moving, you're consistently changing tactics, you're consistently trying to be a step ahead of the insurgents or Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or ISIS or whatever the hell you want to call them now. But to me, it's all one and the same. So you were on a, you were in a reaction unit on a reaction team. What was that like for day-to-day? Uh, you know, for the most part, it was uh, a lot of typical military hurry up and wait right for the most part i mean in the a lot of times we're off in the shadows where people can't see us especially when we're doing bcps because you don't want to be seen obviously and um you, you still you want to maintain the element of surprise and so there's a lot of sitting around and waiting man but i mean when when the bell goes off it's you know it's time to go to work and what would be it, a, a, a typical bell going off what would that mean you were you were doing well, for example, if, uh, if we're setting up a vehicle checkpoint and, of course, the line would be, depending on where we would be set up, the line of cars would get outrageous, outrageously long. Yeah. But if we saw a vehicle turn around to try and not go through once it realized it was, a, they realized it was a vehicle checkpoint, then, you know, our job was to go into action and stop the vehicle depending on if they're a threat or not depends on what actions we would take. And then, so that's just one example. And, uh, you know, little did I know that the, the whole react thing was going to be going to turn into one of my worst days over in country. Um, Cause all we had were two door soft tops at that time. I'm sure you remember, the uproar about they need more armor, they don't have enough armor. That was going on here back in the States. Right. And, and our thought process was, is no, we don't want that because the heavier the vehicles are, the slower they are. Yeah. <laughs> There's two schools of thought there. And when you say the two-door soft tops, he's talking about a Humvee. They weren't all these big armored machines that you see now. And as you mentioned, two schools of thought. If you're light, you're fast, you're hard to catch, and you're easier to get away from the enemy, you have control in that manner. But when you're heavy, you're protected, but you're also slow and a soft, easy target for the enemy to find because you can't floor it at 65 miles an hour. And even if you could, it takes you a couple of little while to get up there. So, um, exactly. you know, well you're not exactly putting your foot on the floor of the Humvee and the thing picks up and goes zero to it goes zero to 60 in like seven minutes. So um, you're not exactly, you know, the getaway speed isn't there. But, you know, what happened on the day that you got that call that ended up changing your life? Yeah, so that was well said, by the way. A lot more elegant than I could put it. Um, or eloquent. I don't know what I meant to say there. Um, 
So we got the orders when we were back at Al-Assad that we were going to go to a place called Dulab, which essentially was an ammo dump. We were going to secure an area of operation that was full of unexploded ordnance. <clears throat> so, you know, AK rounds, RPGs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, for all intents and purposes, it was known to be kind of like a recharge mission because there's usually wasn't a lot going on there. And so there's going to be a lot of downtime, a lot of time to be able to take a breather and relax a little. But for whatever reason, man, I had this, as soon as I heard where we were going, I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach that was just not good. Like I knew something not good was going to go down. And I felt it as much as the sun is shiny, I knew something bad was going to happen. And we went out there and then, uh, after being out there for a couple of days, you know, it was, I still had that feeling in my stomach and didn't know what it was. I didn't, I just knew that something wasn't right. And then, um, the night before I got hit, we actually had a standoff with the Iraqi national guard because we had captured two high profile insurgents. They actually came through the front gate and just got out of the vehicle and laid face down on the road. Really? At the main, exactly. Yeah, and see, it's <laughs> shocking because that is nowhere near their mo. And so, of course, when I see this happen, the react obviously gets called. But where we were at the command post, I could see what was going on, and I I was just waiting for. I was like, well, that's a VBID. That's a vehicle bound. That's an improvised explosive device. That vehicle is going to blow for sure. And, uh, dude, lo and behold, nothing happened. These guys had their IDs on them, and uh, we radioed into battalion. Battalion was like, absolutely do not let them out of your sight. These are these guys are wanted. And so we were like, okay, got it. <clears throat> but unfortunately, before, we were still working in conjunction with the Iraqi police and Iraqi National Guard, which meant they could be on the same radio frequencies as us on, on the net. They could be, they knew where all of our checkpoints were going to be anytime we did a movement, which you and I both know is stupid. Yeah. I don't know what any other way to put that. Well, it's and for stupid. the, for the civilians listening, one of the challenges we faced with the Iraqi police and the Iraqi army is that the enemy would embed guys. They would send moles essentially to work for the Iraqi police and try to work their way into the Iraqi army. And they were, their whole goal was just to get inside long enough to go kill Americans, and especially with the Iraqi police, because we didn't really have any oversight over them. The Iraqi army we worked a lot closer with, with the IPs, you know, it was, you work kind of day to day with them, but you didn't really have any control over them. And a lot of IP units had guys who were bad dudes dressing up as Iraqi police, just waiting for the right moment to take out a whole bunch of Americans. No doubt. That's, you're exactly right. And what made it even harder was, is, you know, I'm sure it's your experience too. Majority of these guys couldn't read or write their own language. Yeah. And so you had the lack of education, the lack of experience. I mean, just thinking about any of them with an AK 47, that's condition one makes my hair stand on. End. And I can't believe there hadn't been more accidents than there, you know, which, cause right. they have zero, Zero situational awareness, and it just it made an already difficult job that much harder. And it was, and the decision was made by people who wear suits to sit behind a desk, and therein lies the problem, in my humble opinion. 
But we ended up having a standoff with these guys because the commander of the Iraq National Guard pulled up and they circled us, me and my, the, my nine fellow Marines that were in the React team with because we had two two-door soft-top Humvees and uh, told us, hey, you know, you can't, these guys, we heard everything on the on the net and I've got my interpreter there and said, you know, these guys pose no threat, you need to let them go. And I was like, yeah, that's, well, that's not going to happen. And so we ended up having a, a fairly tense conversation, which was just felt really, really sketchy because I mean, there's, there's nine of nine of us, 10, including me. And we have one in the back of one Humvee, the other insurgent in the back of the second Humvee. And we're surrounded by you know, 60, 65 INGs all with AK-47s. And I'm just thinking, you know, this is not a good situation to be in. And uh, by the grace of God, our weapons company was listening to everything over the net and we're headed back to Al-Assad after doing patrols. And they came in and circled us. And for those of you that don't know, weapons company are the guys, they carry all the big toys. So they've got the tow missiles and the mounted 50 cals and the Mark 19 grenade launchers, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, once those guys showed up, like almost in unison, every ING soldier out there dropped his weapon and just started the no, the no Mista, no yeah, Mista. That's the sweet sound of victory, by the way. Absolutely. That's <laughs> when I looked at the, the Iraqi National Guard commander and I said, those are my butts. Those are my homies. And uh, he knew what was going down and, he got it and um uh, weapons company took him back to took them both back to, to battalion and or back to al-assad and so the guys bedded down and it was already fairly late into the the morning and sun hadn't come up yet the guys bed down i'm in the command post watch vehicle that powers the command post which is you know another home view with doc because it was doc's turn to watch the flares they would shoot up along the Euphrates and we'd have to count them and say what color they were. But, you know, and then we turn it into Intel for them to try and figure out what the code is or what they're trying to communicate, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I finally told doc, I, I got done talking to doc and, and writing up a report to get to our commander because our, our, our commanding officer because the fact that the Iraqi national guard commander, um, for all intents and purposes, felt very threatened, and I knew that I was going to come back down to me. And it was a formality thing, but I told Doc, I was like, "Hey, man, I got to bed down, I'm smoked." He said, "Good to go, Shick. No worries. You know, some good brother. See you in a few hours." And so I bed down, and it's just it seemed like the typical Iraq curse. I just kicked my boots off and laid down on my cot, and. uh not even 20 minutes later, React gets called. And I just was thinking, could I just sleep through the night in this godforsaken country one freaking time? <laughs> you know, and which you know the answer to. And uh, so I jumped up, and as soon as I, I walked out of our tent, that feeling I had in the pit of my gut went right in my throat. And I knew, like, this is it. I knew we were going to get hit. I didn't know how or by what but I knew something was going to go down and uh, you can call that my grandfather. You can call it God. You're allowed to have your beliefs. I'm allowed to have mine. And um, I remember looking over at my guys and they were walking to the, our two vehicles and they literally 
just looked like a bag full of buttholes. I mean, they had boots off or, you know, boots, one boot on, one off, dragon flak jackets, dragon weapons, just were exhausted. And I just remember, like, it just made me smile because I'm thinking, those are my boys. Those are my brothers, you know, and it just, it was a proud moment for me, even though I knew, like, something's about to go down. So I immediately... Did you, I'm sorry to cut you off. Did no, you did you ever mention that feeling to anybody at any point in time, or you kept it to yourself? No, kept it to myself. No, because in an already tense environment, I mean, it's one of those things where maybe I would, I would do it at an older age now. I don't know. I mean, I couldn't tell you, but that day I didn't want to. But by the actions I took, they knew that I knew something was going down. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that feeling a lot. Of the, and I've, I know the feeling exactly. I had it dozens of times and over... 75 you know combat missions there are just days you get up and you, you, you like today's the day we just can't roll the dice as many times and every now and then to a fellow leader or somebody you'd kind of just let them know man i just got a bad feeling about today like nothing feels right right now and, and you didn't want to say it too many times to too many people because you didn't want to make anybody more tense as you said but um the internalizing of that does strange things it does different things to different people so i was just curious how how you handle that yeah, for sure, man. And I, I just, you know, I guess being in a leadership position and, and again, at such a young age, because, you know, I was 22 and, but the difference between 18 and 22 and that situation, as you know, is, is light years. And I just, I didn't want to put any additional stress on them and or worry them because if, if I showed that I was worried or whatever, I knew that it, that feeling would carry over to to the React team, and I didn't want that to happen. Right. But um, I, I knew right then I need to go to my CO's Humvee and get the bomb blanket out of his Humvee. I know I need that. And so I went to the passenger seat of his up-armored Humvee and took the bomb blanket out. It was a Kevlar blanket. And I walk over to the lead vehicle, and I kick the driver out of the driver's seat who I was really good friends with still to this day, very, very close to. And I remember I told him, I was like, Hey, scoot over. I got it. And he looked at me like, no, I got it. And I I remember getting snappy with him and said, I'm not asking. And it really pissed him off because I think it was the first order I ever gave him. And it really, it just crushed him (laughs) for whatever reason. And, uh, I put the bomb blanket down and I remember telling the guys, if they gave it to you to, for protection, don it right now. So the neck protector, groin protector, shatterproof Wiley Excellences that are not shatterproof, you know, Kevlar, flak jacket, you name it. They gave it to you, put it on right now. And then, um, so by that point, they all knew something was up. And you could see it in their eyes. And then I took the radio from the radio man and got on the radio with my right hand and uh gassed it and less than three minutes later the front left tire of the lead humvee which i was driving uh hit a triple stack tank mine that was pressure plate ignited which was three one five five millimeter mortar rounds stacked oh jesus yeah it was and so for the people out there that don't understand ordinances or in layman's terms, it just it was a big damn bomb. Yeah, I mean a one five five is what they put in a howitzer. It's it, you know it's it's that one that they launch artillery in essentially. So just 
think of the destruction of that and multiply it by three, hitting a, a small Humvee. Yeah, it was uh, made for a long day at the office, that's for sure. But, <laughs> Understatement, um, but go ahead. Yeah, it, uh, it, blew up, it blew up directly beneath me and then blew me through the top of the Humvee, uh, went 30 feet and stuck to landing with my head because, again, we're Marines and believe in good form. But um, I like to say because God's a comedian, I never lost consciousness and I never went into shock. And it took the Blackhawk 42 minutes to come get me. That's amazing. Let me ask you real quick, you know, thinking back about all that armor situation, when you got blown to the top of the vehicle, you were able to go through because it was a soft top. Had that been armor, you might not even be sitting here talking to me. No, matter of fact, I think that we would all been dead. I think if it was up armored, I don't think any of us would have walked away because that energy would have stayed inside know, the Humvee. Exactly. That energy would have had nowhere to go. And I just think it would have been, I mean, trust me, I've thought about it a billion times at least. And especially spending 18 months in the hospital, I knew I had a lot of time to go over that scenario and what I could have done different or what. And really at the end of the day, everything played out the way it was supposed to play out. I was the only one severely wounded, which, Thank God, better me than my Marines. And, um, you know, yeah, if it was an up armor on V, man, I think that we would have all been red messed in the wind. That's just way too much energy stopping way too quickly. Yeah, in a small, a small confined area. So take me through. You land on the ground after being thrown in the air. You never lost consciousness. What's the first thing you're thinking when you hit the ground? This is going to be a long day. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, in all honesty, before I hit the ground, I knew because I remember all of it like it happened yesterday and it was um, I knew it was going to be bad and I knew that I was hurt bad <clears throat> and when I hit the ground and uh, started self-assessment I, I it was abundantly apparent very quickly very quick that uh, I was I was severely injured and did uh, you know what yeah. what to what extent I knew that uh, I might not make it out of there. I knew that I was uh, there's a high probability of me bleeding out, and I, I, I was nervous that. I tell you, the first thing I did after I did my self assessment was I talked to God and I said, "Hey, big man, whatever you do, just please don't take me in front of my Marines. Just all I ask is that you please don't don't allow my brothers to watch me die." And as soon as that bird gets here and those kids leave the deck, I'm all yours. Just please don't take me in front of my family. That was my foremost thought that I was really focused on, which in turn I think made me fight a little harder than I otherwise would have because I was motivated to not die in front of them because I wouldn't want them to have to live with that. It's an amazing, amazing thought. I I can't even process it. I mean, it's just it's – the dedication and loyalty right there is just unreal. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's my family, man. It was my tribe, and all I knew how to do was love them hard, and I just didn't want to uh, to put them through that. And so I was very thankful that I was still awake and aware and alert and pissed the hell off by the time the bird got there. And I remember Doc, the same Doc I was sitting in the Humvee that was powering the command post, with just a few hours before is the one working on me and I'm calling him a stingy bastard because he'd only hit me with two sticks of morphine. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and 
All I knew, I was in a lot of pain, and he had drugs, and he wouldn't give me any more. Why? So, was he worried your heart rate was going to fall too low? No, he. But he explained it to me later on and said, "Well, Jake, I, the reason I couldn't do it was because you you have muscles around your lungs that if you get too relaxed and too lax, then your you could your muscles could stop functioning and you suffocate." And I was like, "Oh, well, I didn't know that. Thanks for not giving me any more. Like, appreciate it, Doc. I mean, I didn't know." I right. didn't care. I was in a lot of pain. That's all I knew. Did, did, what were your injuries at that point in time? Were you able to assess it? Yeah, so I had uh, multiple compound fractures in my left leg and left arm. So I saw my fibula, saw my tibia, Ooh. saw my ulna, saw my radius. Oh. lost five inches of ulna in my left arm. saw daylight through my left arm, which I thought was – as soon as I looked at it, I was like, yep, that's not supposed to be like that. And then I uh, lost part of my left hand. And uh, my right foot – on my right leg was crushed it was when the firewall from the humvee folded it crushed my foot before it blew me out oh man and um when the steering wheel disengaged from the dash the steering wheel hit me in my chest which broke all my ribs oh and that all happened before i was blown out because as you well know in one of those explosions whether it's a you know, it doesn't matter if it's a 155, multiple, it doesn't matter. They all happen so quickly. There's a sequence of events that happen that happen so fast that it's incredible the amount of things that can happen before a person is ejected. And um, so I had a ton of injuries. I had shrapnel on my neck and my face, and uh, my shatterproof Wiley-X lens is shattered, and a piece of the lens went in my right eye, so I couldn't see out of my right eye. And, uh, man, you know, it was... It was a gnarly, gnarly day. And so I knew, you know, this is not good. And Doc knew it wasn't good. And it was a miracle that I even made it to the bird. The bird made it to me, I should say. What's the last thing you remember? Well, I remember talking to the guys. I talked to every one of them. And I was in the back of the second Humvee, which is still operable, wasn't affected. And, um... I'm real thankful for that time because I got to tell every one of them how much I love them and to let them, you know, I said, look, look at me because this is, this is what they want. You know, keep fighting, fight even harder. And, uh, I just wanted them to know that, you know, you have to win, you have to fight to win. And they knew that already, but for whatever reason, um, maybe God used me as motivation. I don't know, which I'm okay with. I don't care because, it is what it is. Again, we volunteered for it. And, um, but I remember the guys loading me on the bird and my platoon sergeant was the last one on the bird. And <clears throat> he looked at me in my face and he was trying to, he tried to say it without crying. Like, you know what I'm talking about, especially since you have kids. Like if you're trying to get a, say something to someone and you're really fighting, getting emotional, it's obvious. And he looked at me and he, said uh he kissed me on my forehead actually and he looked at me and gave me a kind of like a half smile and he quickly got out we'll see you soon jack london and he calls him he always called me jack london because the first generation marine was jack london chick the second generation marine was jack london chick jr so whatever reason he always called me jack london Mm -hmm. and um i knew he was full of crap (laughs) he was trying not to cry which made me it gave me again I was like, well, I kind of, it kind of pissed me off. (laughs) 
Because it's like, you just lied to my face, asshole. Like, <laughs> you know? And so I was like, well, I'll show him. And uh, he got off the bird, and bird took off. And I remember as soon as we got midair, I, I was able to get the attention of one of the litter crew who was, I mean, a young, young dude. He, was, he couldn't have been a day over 18. It, it looked like he had never had to shave in his life young army national guard guy and um it was weird because he he wouldn't look at me at first like he just kind of was looking out the door and wouldn't look over and i'm trying to get his attention with my right arm because that was the only thing that wasn't broken or shattered and uh he finally looks over and then he does come to me and he gets down to my ear and and i yell how long and i remember when i yelled that like i felt more life leave my body so i knew i was dying and uh <clears throat> because for the people that don't know your listeners that don't know in the back of one of those birds if you don't have a headset especially it is in- incredibly loud right and he read up front to the captain you know, asked the captain came back and he got in my ear and he yelled 12 mics for 12 minutes and at that point as soon as he said it i talked to god again right then and i said hey big man I'm afraid I'm going to have to renege on our original verbal agreement because I think I can make it 12 more minutes. <laughs> and uh, he obviously granted me that because I'm talking to you now. But we got into Balad, which at the time it was just a, nothing more than a tent next to, you know, right next to Baghdad. And it was, uh, they got me off the bird, man. And it was, I mean, they're name rank social, name rank socials, trying to reset my left leg, my left arm. We weren't even in the tent yet. So I was pissed. That really pissed me off. And, uh, I have my meat tags, you know, my, my dog tags tattooed on my ribs, like a lot of grunts do. And I finally was just said that, you know, they're right on my, all your information that you want to know is tattooed on my ribs. I'm done talking to you guys. And, um, Let's just get this out of the way. I was never a good patient ever (laughs) throughout the entire process. But then they take me in and, uh, last thing I remember is one of the surgeons was, uh, sewing up the left side of my face and he said, oops. And I looked over at him and I said, what do you mean? Oops, doc. And he said, Hey, sorry, Marina. I screwed up on your stitches. I'm going to start again. And I said, Hey doc, at this point, I'm covered up to my neck in a sheet. And I said, hey, Doc, I don't know if you've seen the rest of my body, but I'm pretty sure the scratches on my face are the least of our worries. And he gave, like, some nod or whatever to the anesthetist, and they knocked me the hell out. And so that was the last thing I remember. <laughs> they were tired of talking here. to you. <laughs> they were done, man. And I don't blame them one bit. Not one bit. But well, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, with, I mean, you know, through this whole ordeal and, and – you know, civilians listening to this, what I'm about to say next is really going to shock you, but that wasn't even the toughest part of your war. I mean, you're, the second phase of your war begins now. Yeah, the real battle, my, my personal battle started right then. You're exactly right. Yeah, without question. I mean, I, and it started when Nurse Jax woke me up and, and Balad and said, hey, I hate to tell you this, Marine, but we had to take your right foot. And my initial thought was perfect. You took the wrong foot freaking foot because when i looked down doing self-assessment it was my left leg that was mangled that i saw my fibia and tibia and my foot was turned over facing the other way and uh i just thought you know good enough for government work whatever um she explained it to me quickly like no no your right foot was dead by the time you got here because when that firewall folded on my right foot it crushed it and it 
it inhibited the blood from flowing into my foot. So I had no gotcha. blood flow into my foot. Mm. And so they cut it off right at the ankle. And uh, she explained that to me and said, you know, we're getting you to Germany. And she said, uh, is there anyone you want to call? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I could think of a few people that I should probably call. Um, and I called, and I called my folks and really talking to my dad. That was, man, hands down, that was one of the hardest conversations I've, I've ever had. And Why? I knew it was late. Well, because I knew he was by himself because I knew my stepmom, my little brother were at the ranch in San Antonio and my, their primary house is in Shreveport, Louisiana. And, uh, I just knew that he was going to take it really hard and I knew he was alone, but uh, I needed him to know. I wanted him to hear it from me and not from our first sergeant back with I and I and, uh, which is now Sergeant major of the Marine Corps, Ronald green. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was, that was why it was really one of the reasons it was tough, but secondly, just because, you know, it was, uh, almost felt guilty. I never wanted him to have to get that call. And so it was tough, man. And I just remember him answering the phone and, you know, you have that two, three second delay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I just said, and he knew it was me cause I'm the only kid that calls him pop. And I said, Hey pop. And the first thing he said is, why am I talking to you? because I had a rule when I left and I told my family and my friends, I said, listen, uh, don't write me. Don't send me anything. I'm not going to call you. We have a job to do. I'll see you in seven months. I don't need you getting in my head. And to be fair, I mean, my family puts to Jerry and Springer. So there's that too. But, um, (laughs) yeah, it was tough. Was there, was there any guilt about your father not being upset with you for joining without telling him and, and the whole thing? I mean, did any of that come boiling back up? No, not really, man, because it was at that point I knew that I wasn't out of the woods. You know, I knew that I was questionable. I didn't know if I was going to make it to Germany, you know, and, and there's Jackson's very honest and open with me. You know, she said, this is, you have a very long road ahead of you and it, it starts right now. And, um, so the guilt was more of, you know, the same way I felt with the guys. Like I got hit, they got me and, now my guys are in harm's way and they're in a damn thing I can do about it. And that killed me. That really tore me up. I mean, leaving my guys when that bird took off and I left them bar none was the hardest thing I had to do throughout the entire process through everything. That was the hardest thing. Were any of the other guys injured at all in the explosion? Yeah. Uh, blown eardrums. Oh, <clears throat> the explosion literally <laughs> blew directly beneath me. Yeah, so when I say that, like if I'm speaking publicly or something, I say, yeah, they had blown eardrums, and I say it nonchalantly. Some people are like, well, that must not be fun. <laughs> like, yeah, trust me, they got out okay. Yeah, they, they, they got they got the, the the good stick of the short sticks of all of them. So <laughs> exactly, God, just blown eardrums. All right, so you end up getting back stateside. Um, do you wake up at Bethesda Naval and and your world is different? How does that whole thing come come about? Yeah, well. Uh, so I stopped in Germany, but I was only in Germany 17 hours because I got pretty critical on the flight from Iraq to Germany. Oh, really? And uh, I did, yeah. And they wanted to get me home just in case. Um, that, that's an SOP that just in case you do expire, they want you to be able to have a chance to 
say your goodbyes to your family, et cetera, et cetera. And they got me back to the States and you're, you're right. I went to Bethesda Naval and, uh, as soon as the ambulance doors opened, uh, my dad and my family was right there and they couldn't tell it was me. They were told by the command, like, Hey, you know, he's, or the liaison, you know, Jake's coming and they just landed on the runway. And so they knew it was me, but my dad, my head was swollen and my eyes were almost swollen shut. Uh, my right one was completely, but I could barely see out of my left one. And I'm sure my head looked like a, a purple watermelon. And I'm sure I smelt amazing. <laughs> and, uh, my dad put his hand on my chest and he said, Hey Bubba, is that you? And all I could get out was get your damn hand off my chest. Cause it hurt like hell because all my ribs were broken. Everything <laughs> hurt. And so he pulled his hand off and looked at my family. He's like, yeah, that's Jake. Yeah. And so <laughs> they pulled me off and take me, uh, into the, the hospital and they get me into the, the elevator where, you know, they take all the hospital beds to move up or down and, took me down to ICU and got into ICU and uh, they we said our quick hellos and and that was it they started this blonde-headed doc came in to start prepping me for the OR I was in the OR for every 48 to 72 hours for the first month I was home really and yeah it was crazy man and um, how many total surgeries Stateside had 46. Oh, God. Yeah, 46 operations. Over the course of how long? 18 months. Oh, you're kidding me. No. And so uh, I was a guinea pig for for a few things because, you know, it was 04. And so I didn't even think we called them IEDs when I was there. I don't even think we used that terminology yet. I think we were still using roadside bomb. Yeah. And just for those and, doing the math real quick, 18 months, 46, that's a surgery every two and a half months. Like, that's yeah. that's unreal. <clears throat> yeah, it was uh, it was bad, man. It was gnarly for sure. But I'm sitting there in the ICU, and then this blonde-headed doc walks in, and she's really good looking. She's an intern with the Navy. And, I, and so that immediately pisses me off because I'm thinking, I know they have ugly interns. Like, I know there's other people in this hospital that could come in this room right now and prep me for the operating room. It does not have to be probably the hottest chick in the hospital because I was not necessarily <laughs> looking my best. That is outstanding. Oh, and man. so I'm immediately pissed off. And uh, You so know, I'm picking up on a theme here, Jacob, real quick. You know, a lot of things yeah. that happen to you, your first reaction is to be pissed. Exactly. Okay. You're right. spot on. You're spot on. <laughs> and so I, I, I just, all I did was revert to training and just immediately started bulldogging her and just talking to her like a Marine. And little did I know it was the first night of her very first trauma rotation. And <laughs> she pulled my chart, which is not winning the lotto by any stretch. And uh, within a few minutes, she was out of my room and shaking and in tears and i remember she took the the chart and smacked it on another intern's chest and verbatim said he's all yours i will never go in that asshole's room ever again really so that's verbatim what she said is it because of what but, you uh, said to her or just the situation yeah it was just because of how hard i was on her oh okay and, but um the the caveat to that is that we ended up this past january was our 10-year wedding anniversary no. <laughs> and uh, you know, she's a mother of my two sons, of our two sons. And you know, I can say with 100% conviction, 
I just so happen to marry a woman who's ten times stronger than I'll ever be, and I have I know hold no bones about saying that, man. I mean, she's for all in all fairness, uh, one of the main reasons I'm even talking to you right now. She really, really has uh, been been a rock for me, and you know, hopefully, I've got a lot year a lot of years left to to repay her for it, but. This, we don't have enough time to get into how all that happened. <laughs> that's what happened, and, and I ended up uh, staying in Bethesda for a few months. And then I finally uh, I left Bethesda and went to Brook Army Medical in San Antonio. And I was actually the first Marine to be sent to an Army facility in the post-9-11 conflict. And uh, I like to say that that accounts for 50% of my post-traumatic stress because I was the only Marine at an Army facility. But... Um, that was where I spent 15 months in Bamsey. And, uh, you know, it was tough. That was uh, a tough go because it was, you know, you, you met a lot of guys who didn't make it in the hospital. And, and then, of course, being at Bamsey, which is the number one military burn ward. I'll tell you what, man, th- that's those are the real warriors the guys and gals that have been burnt and uh have to deal with that god bless them they are they are straight up gladiators and i am a sissy compared to every one of them amen perfectly um, said yeah man it was but i remember leaving uh bamsey and uh it was general fox was walking me out of the hospital and or he was walking i was still rolling wasn't walking well yet then and uh he said i've I gotta tell you, Shick, I feel like we should name a hall or something after all the hell you put us through. <laughs> I just remember thinking, "Hey, sir," uh, I told him, "I was like, hey, sir, it's all good. I can, I can do the infamy thing all my lonesome. I don't need your help." But uh, we had a good relationship, man. I mean, I remember um, a lot of good people there that it did a lot of good for me. And but I left there and actually ended up going to Pensacola, Florida, to meet up with Laura, who is now in flight training. She became a flight surgeon in the Navy. And, uh, that's where they gave me a big bag of drugs when I was leaving. And I knew, I knew how this is going to end. I knew that I was an addict when I got out of the hospital and I knew that and it wasn't anybody's fault. It's just the way it is. You can't go through what I went through physically, you know, being cut on that often, you know, your, your tolerance for pain medication just goes up and up and up. So the amount of medications they have to give you goes up and up and up. But let me let me ask you a question. As far as physically, obviously, as you just mentioned, you're in so much pain, your tolerance builds up to it. But how much mentally did constantly being in pain affect you? You know, uh, yeah, it just made me made me mad more than anything. But at the same time, um, yeah, I think the anger stems from a few things, and one of them is, and the main one, look, I was 100% mentally prepared to go die in the name of fighting for freedom, but it never crossed my mind one time that I could be severely wounded and live. I didn't know how to be a severely wounded Marine. Right. I don't, I don't think you can train for that. And, uh, so that really was, my focus was more not on my pain, but 
just getting through the day. And that's all I focused on was let's get through today. Tomorrow's a new day. We'll start tomorrow. I never really focused on my pain. Um, and one of the main reasons is, is because I, I was high a lot. And when I left the hospital and they gave me that big bag of drugs, I knew that that's how I was going to reintegrate into civilian society, even though I didn't get out for a little while after I left San Antonio. But uh, I severely abused my medication because that was how I dealt with my new norms. Because if I was high, I was numb. And if I was numb, nothing mattered. If you can't feel anything, nothing matters. And uh, rather mentally or physically. And I like to say all the time that, you know, physical pain reminds you you're alive, but mental pain will test your will to stay that way. And so the fact that I was numb, both mentally and physically, nothing mattered. And it ultimately just made me a terrible person. So how do you, you get know, out of this downward spiral? You know, I was in the uh, living room in our one bedroom apartment in Pensacola one night and Laura, I'm sitting in my wheelchair and Laura came to me, felt her knees. She was emotional, which she knew was immediately going to piss me off. And, um, she just said, you're slowly killing yourself. And when we were in that apartment, I slept with a double barrel shotgun. It was always conditioned one, which means ready to fire next to the bed. Why? And, one for protection and two because I might eat it for myself and uh, thought about it every day for about a year and um, she knew it and uh, that's when you know she was on her knees and just said you're slowly killing yourself verbatim she said that the difference between you living the way you're living now or eating a bullet is time but the outcome is going to be the same you're going to die and she said, you owe it to your brothers that didn't come home and those that did and still love and respect you to not only live, but live well, because that's the only way you can truly honor them. And then she said, you're being a selfish bastard. And so I politely asked her to get out of the living room. And uh, you know, I thought about it for well into the morning. And I had called my head physician in San Antonio at Bamsey and said, hey, good news, I'm getting off all the drugs. At this point, I'm taking around 55 pills three times a day and eating between 8 and 12, 400 milligram fentanyl pops a day. Oh, man. Tons of drugs. I was on a ton. And she said, oh, really? Well, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I just didn't take the first dose. And she says, uh, well, I would advise against that highly. And I said, well, why is that, Doc? She said, well, because you're going to have a massive heart attack and die. I said, well, Roger, that plan A is a no-go. What's plan B look like? And she said, well, you're going to have to come back to San Antonio. We're going to have to wean you off the drugs, which is not what I wanted to hear. But I did it because I knew I had to do it or I was going to die. And uh, I'm not going to tell your brother, that was... And I, and I say this with all sincerity. I don't know what was worse, being blown up or coming off the drugs. It was equally miserable. And I have never to this day been that violently ill and uh, had not been before that point. And matter of fact, when I was coming off the drugs, that was the one time that I finally told God, the one time, one and only time, I'm done. I'm ready when you are. 
So I can sit here and tell you with 100% conviction that I know why addicts stay addicts. So how'd you beat it? Grit, man. Grit and uh, surrounding myself with people that weren't willing to love me to death. So um, that's really what it was. It was, uh, and I owed it to my brothers, man. I just flat out. Laura hit the nail on the head when she said the only way you can honor your brothers is by not only living, but living well. And that really stuck with me. I mean, I think about it every day. I think about that sentence every single day. And then every day I go to bed, I think, you know, how well did I live today? Could I have done something better? You know, it's interesting. I've I've seen you use the phrase soul bleeder and soul feeder. Give me some background. Give me, give me background into that, please. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's what I always say. You're you're one of two things in this world. You're either a soul feeder or you're a soul bleeder. And, you know, I always tell people to choose wisely because you only get one shot at this life. This is not a dress rehearsal. And um, because I, I, I thought about it because I was a soul bleeder where, in other words, you know, I, I would drain people's energy just because of my mentality and my thought process and the way that I behave and the way I conducted myself, especially when I was an addict and because everything was evolved around my next high. That's all I cared about. And I was a soul bleeder. I mean, I was, I would bleed people's souls dry if they let me. And, uh, you know, I learned on when I got clean and I started to live outside my comfort zone where I got comfortable being uncomfortable, I learned, okay, I'm growing. This is what it's about. If I, if I consistently challenge myself and refuse to get completely comfortable, no matter what my environment is, and I refuse to be a product of my circumstances, that's where the soul feeding comes in. And at the end of the day, that's what this life is all about. It's about how many souls can you feed before God pulls your card. It doesn't have a damn thing to do with me personally. You know, it doesn't have a thing to do with what I accomplish or what I become. It has to do with how many people I can help throughout my life. Is that what led you to 22 Kill? Absolutely, 100%. You know, what led me there was I've been involved with 22 Kill since its inception and uh, – you know, it's something that I'm beyond proud to say that I'm a small part of, and I'm beyond proud to say that, you know, 22 Kill is a, it, it's made up of a tribe of men and women who are just far better than I'll ever be, just like the Marines I fall with. And by default, it makes me better. And, um, you know, the, the sole mission there, is just to empower warriors and to let them know that no matter what, no matter how hard it gets, this life is worth living. And the whole thing behind uh, the awareness piece of it, like I'm sure you've, you've seen the 22 push-up challenge. Yep. You know, we came out with that actually in, in uh, 2013. Uh, but the point is, is to raise awareness and spread knowledge. And the point behind that is, is that the common problem remains a common problem until it becomes common knowledge. And that's with anything. There's nothing done about the about cancer or AIDS. Those movements, 
never started until it affected somebody with money and or power. And so the way around that with veteran suicide and the, in the warrior community is strength in numbers. And this is like, I tell the tribe all the time and the like-minded individuals that fight the same fight that we fight. You know, listen, this has nothing to do with me personally. I am never going to do anything in conjunction with this fight worth writing about. But if I surround myself with people that are driven by the same passions and the same convictions and are willing to look past their pain to find their purpose, that's what you read about in history books. And that's the whole goal behind 22 Kill and our mission and our movement. And that's why we fight this fight day in and day out, no matter how hard it gets, because we know, one, it's bigger than ourselves, and two, if not us, who? I mean, it's perfectly said, Jacob. It's, you know, it's a beautiful sentiment uh, outside of that. I mean, look, we're all in this thing together, and, and I think that's some of the toughest challenges for veterans is remembering that we're still in it together. Even though you're not wearing a uniform anymore or whatever your circumstances may be, whether they're as dire as yours or as hidden as some other people's, um, you know, it's so easy to forget that we still got battle buddies. Absolutely, brother. And that's, you're 100% right. One of the main things that I come across, and which I'm sure you'll agree, I, I don't want to speak for you, but when I talk to Warriors or if I talk to NFL athletes who are retired or Major League Baseball players who are retired, they all say the same thing. I don't miss the field. I miss the locker room. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same sentiment with us as Warriors. Of course we don't miss the battlefield. I mean, it, I miss the camaraderie, the day-in and day-out camaraderie. And luckily I get that when I get to go to work every day and fight towards a fight that's bigger than me. And uh, yeah, that's why our tagline is one tribe, one fight. You know, because we, no one person's ever won a war by themselves. No one person's ever won a game by themselves. You know, no one person has ever done anything worth writing about outside of Jesus Christ. And um, that's the whole point. And that's why we, we want to spread this mission far and wide. And, and we're fortunate that, you know, the push-ups have carried far beyond our borders. And that's because, you know, it's unfortunate that our country is not the only country that's losing warriors. So are our allies, and it's for the same reasons. And, you know, people ask me all the time, well, what's the answer? Well, there is no one answer. It's not our job to understand the why. It's our job to understand the what next. What's the next move? What's our, you know, what's our next strategic step that we're going to take to empower these men and women and their families to know that, hey, we have your back, and you do not have to fight this fight alone. Let us fight with you. And that's a huge thing. I mean, the fighting together is, is so important because it's the only way that we all survive together. Now, speaking of fighting together, uh, you managed to sneak a cameo part into American Sniper. Tell me <laughs> about that and how that came about. So, yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting story how that happened. Uh, so I was in a documentary in, uh, I believe, 2000 six or maybe it's 2007 it's weird because i'm looking at a picture of him right now with james gandolfini also known as tony soprano yep and that was the uh uh a live day wasn't it it was called a live thank you yeah thank you i had, I had a bomb moment i couldn't think of the name uh, 
Yes, A Live Day Memories, Home from Iraq was the documentary. And he executively produced it, and uh, it was just an amazing man. May he rest in peace. He was a, a great guy and a great patriot. But um, <laughs> I did that documentary, and then they loop it sometimes on HBO when it comes to days like Veterans Day or Memorial Day or July 4th. They'll loop stuff like that. And... Uh, the casting director for American Sniper actually saw it one night and had someone from Clint Eastwood's production company reach out to me on Facebook. <laughs> and it was in, it was an outbox message. So like one of your friends who's not one of your friends sends you a message. Then it would say outbox. And I remember reading it and just thinking, you yeah, know, this is total crap. There's no way there's any, <laughs> any relativity to this or there's any this is just there's no way this is true because it said you know this is so-and-so from a lot of Mary Post Productions we'd like for you to audition for a part in American Sniper which is a book written after or written by Chris Kyle who was blah blah and we all know who Chris Kyle is obviously and uh so I just thought it was spam and and so I immediately called Jeff Kyle, who's Chris's little brother, also United States Marine combat guy and very close friend of mine. And uh, I said, hey, Jeff, I just got this weird message on Facebook and I read it to him. And right away he said, he's Hollywood, <laughs> like immediately, immediately started digging at me. And I just said, hey, man, come on. I was just seeing, I said, are they really making a movie about Chris's book? And he said, yeah, they are. Glenn Eastwood's going to direct it. Bradley Cooper's going to play Chris, which I thought right then, like, there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way that that dude can pull it off, which I was wrong. But um, that's how it all happened. I ended up, uh, matter of fact, Jeff called me back later that night. I told him when they needed the audition tape, and he said, hey, man, you know, if you're not doing anything, Thursday morning, I believe it was. Why don't you come over and I'll read the part of Chris's, if you will, in your audition tape, which I thought was an amazing thing for him to offer because he can imagine the the pain there. Yeah, That's, absolutely. Uh, still very fresh and on the surface, and so he was gracious enough to do that, and we did it. And uh, about a month later, I got a call from uh, American Sniper. And they said, we'd like to offer you the position to win. And that's how it all started. And uh, I remember when I got there the first day in, into, uh, in L.A. And uh, Wayne Kyle sends me a text. That's Jeff and Chris's dad. And said, heard you're, heard you're headed to L.A. Break a leg. And he thought he was that was real cute because obviously <laughs> I'm an amputee. So. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was a very cool experience, man, to be uh, – a part of something so amazing and legendary. I mean, it was a a movie made about a legend past by a living legend, and you know, I couldn't be more thankful to be a small part of that and and to be a part of honoring Chris's legacy, who, who's without question a warrior's warrior. And uh, and the takeaway there for me really is um, for for not only the film but for Chris is that you know through the we hear all the things we hear about Hollywood and we know that they're all in their own world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to tell you through this film, man, they've, uh, you know, Chris never cared about how many lives he took. 
That's was never his focus. He he cared about how many lives he couldn't save. Right. And uh, through the power and the magic of Hollywood, he's going to be able to help far more warriors through from beyond the grave than he ever could have probably while he was alive. And so that to me is a takeaway that I think in some small way gives the family comfort because, uh, you know, warriors can watch that movie and say, well, if Chris Kyle can go ask for help, then I can too. Well, shameless plug here for the hazard ground. Taya Kyle, Chris's wife was actually a previous guest. And uh, oh, there you go. One of if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, go back and do it. Uh, just one of my absolute favorite episodes. I mean, her grace and her beauty and her strength are are unrivaled. Uh, she just was absolutely amazing to talk to, and she was so honest and so raw, and told so many great anecdotal stories about Chris and his life and things that you echoed. You know that that he didn't care about him, people he killed. He, he was more concerned with the people that he saved and and their lives, and ultimately. You know, it's what it's what took Chris's life, his his big genuine heart, um, and trying to help people is ultimately what led to to his death. So, uh, but as you said, you know, he is doing a lot more or as much now in his afterlife as he did in his actual life, and I think that's something always positive to be remembered. For sure, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, they're obviously a, a family who have been through. Not only them either, the, the Littlefield family. We, we can't forget about the Littlefields and Chad, who was also a veteran, um, who unfortunately uh, life was lost that day from uh, an ignorant act. And, uh, you know, it's our job. We're now the gatekeepers of that legacy, and it's our job to make sure that that legacy lives on. It's our job at 22 Kill to make sure that the warriors we lose to the mental demons, their legacies move on. It's um, that's one of our priorities, and it's something that we keep in the forefront of thought. So that's what helps us get up and stand up every day and realize, you know, here's another day to really affect change in a very positive manner. Hope that it's it's uh, well intentioned and graced by God enough to where it can be a force multiplier for the greater good for the entire warrior community and their families. And it's 22kill.com, the number 22kill.com. That's where you go if you want to donate, if you want to buy one of the rings that we all wear to support, uh, you know, kind of connects us all as veterans. And it's just a great sentiment in the 22 push-ups and everything else. And look, Jacob, you've done so much, um, you know, for veterans and everything else. And you continue to live your life and be a soul feeder, as you talked about. And we thank you so much for being part of this podcast. It means the world to us. And we hope that more people hear your story. Check out 22kill.com and continue to do uh, right by veterans everywhere. We certainly just appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you, brother. I'm, uh, and I mean this with 100% sincerity. I'm beyond humbled and grateful and appreciative and privileged that you asked me to come on. And um, can't thank you enough. Keep fighting the good fight and spreading the, the great awareness and, and feeding souls, brother. I, I sure, sure really appreciate you. Jacob Schick, 22kill.com. Thank you so much, brother. Hoorah, brother. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.